Welcome to the Excel in Retirement Show. My name is David Treese, and I am a financial advisor located in Spartanburg, South Carolina. However, we work with clients all over, and we would be honored to speak with you about your particular situation. My goal with the radio show here is to distill a couple financial planning ideas that could help you excel in retirement. As always, we're honored to have you here, so thanks for listening. You can reach me by calling 864-618-4800. Well, over the weekend, I got an opportunity to spend a little time outside. It is so hard to break loose and uh, feel good about going to goof off a little bit, so to speak, but went up to the mountains of North Carolina with some friends and did a little kayaking. Went down the Broad River and spent about four or five hours out there Went down about 16 miles, and the river was up high, so it was a pretty leisurely little paddle, but really enjoyed that. I'd encourage you to get outside. We have had some great weather this year, and uh, here in the Carolinas anyway, and it's unseasonably cool. I mean, it's normally pretty unpleasant this time of year around here, but uh, we haven't had those unbearable temperatures, I don't think, but... Get outside, it's good for you, good for the soul, makes you a little bit happier. The vitamin D is good for you, helps with coronavirus, they say, also. So anyhow, that was my weekend. I hope you had a great weekend and have been doing well. On the podcast today, we're going to be talking about a couple financial indicators and what they are telling us. As a financial advisor, I am a student of the markets and I study and observe what's going on. When I'm buying tires for my car, I look for the all-weather tires. I have no interest in having to change tires out in the summer or winter. I want something I can put on my cars and forget about them. I want them to do their job and I want them to hold up. And that's what we do for our clients. We put a plan together that they can forget about and it will do its job. They don't have to worry about what to do when the stock market is crashing or they don't feel like they have to buy Tesla because it's the next big thing. We build all-weather plans that are always in the right state for our clients. That's what we do at our firm. What I'm going to be sharing with you today on the show should not be viewed as negative news. That's meant to depress you or anything like that. That's not my intent. I'm sharing this info with you because this impacts us all, and it especially impacts those of us who are within 10 years of retirement, or maybe you're retired now, it really impacts you. Most people don't want to come out of retirement and go back to work because they have to. Some people may choose to do so, but few of us would want to be forced to work when we can make some adjustments to our financial plan to prepare in light of what's going on in the world as far as the financial markets. The first thing we want to talk about is last year, we were warning our clients about a possible recession coming. Even if you are an evergreen optimist, you had to see that the markets can't continue up in perpetuity. But there were indicators like the yield curve that uh, were great indicators of what was going on. The definition of the yield curve, if you're not familiar, is a line that plots yields or interest rates of bonds having equal credit quality but having differing maturity dates. The slope of the yield curve gives an idea of future interest rate changes in economic activity. And don't tune me out yet. I'm going to explain that to you and make it easy to understand. The yield curve inverted on March 22nd of 2019 for the first time since 2007. And now Campbell Harvey, he's a finance professor at Duke University, he's researched the yield curve 
and has been a go-to resource on this topic. From CNBC, Harvey has led work in research on inverted curves, which happens when short-term treasury yields are higher than those with longer duration. During his research, first revealed in 1986, he found that an inversion between the three-month and the 10-year treasury has foretold the past seven recessions since 1950. And so what the yield curve is, is when short-term bonds are selling for more than long-term bonds. Now, if you went down to the bank and said, hey, what's the rate for CDs? You said, Mr. Banker, what's the rate for a six-month CD? He might tell you something. Let's say just hypothetically, this isn't accurate, but this is just for illustration's sake. Let's say for a six-month uh, uh, CD, the interest rate is 2%, okay? And so you say, well, what's the, what's the uh, interest rate for the one-year CD? He might say it's 4%. Now, a yield curve being inverted would mean that the six-month CD is selling for 4%, or will give you 4%, and the, and the one-year will give you 2%. That's what an inverted yield curve is. And so it's not, it doesn't make sense. And so what has happened is this, this professor from Duke came up with this and has been a go-to, go-to resource, as I said, for this uh, in the past, but what this has done is when this happens, it has accurately predicted many recessions in the past 50 years. Harvey told Bloomberg recently, we are in a deep recession, yet the stock market has completely blown it off. You see some green shoots in the bond market also. I said irrational exuberance in gold, but at a minimum, but at a minimum, it's kind of a rose-colored glasses effect where people are not looking at the structural damage that's been done to our economy, the potential cost of the QE, the potential cost of having to pay back all the fiscal stimulus. That's being completely ignored. And to me, that's very worrisome when you've got markets like this. So from Business Insider, while inversions tend to spark sell-offs the day they happen, the indicator often arrives many months uh, before the economy falls into the recession. The downturn tends to hit hardest about 22 months after the inversion, according to Credit Suisse. And so 22 months after March of 2019, would that would put us at about January of 2021 uh, by that logic. So that's pretty interesting that... Perhaps the, the worst isn't, hasn't happened yet. So the next thing I want to talk about, moving right along, overnight lending. Let's define this also. You're getting a real education today, and you'll know much more than, than many stock advisors or stockbrokers and financial advisors even know. Let's define it. The overnight market is the component of the money market uh, involving the shortest term loan. The overnight market is the component of the money market involving the shortest term loan. Lenders agree to lend borrowers' funds only overnight, i.e. the borrower must repay the borrowed funds plus interest at the start of the next business day. So the system typically hums along with interest rates changed on repo deals hovering close to the Fed's benchmark overnight rate, which it cut uh, to 1.75 to zero recently. And so it normally hovers, though, from 1.75 to 2.25, the article states. So when banks need to make loans, they borrow, and they don't have the money immediately, they borrow from other institutions, and it's called an overnight loan. The loan must be paid back the next day. So if they were waiting on the funds to come through from a deal, perhaps, uh, they might borrow money from another institution to cover it. 
But in late September of last year, interest rates shot up as high as 10%. And keep in mind, these are normally 1.75 to 2.25. So the interest rate shot up to 10% for some overnight loans, more than four times the Fed Federal Reserve's policy rate. And this raised concerns about the, fra- uh, the fragile state of the U.S. dollar funding the markets. And so the Fed got involved with this. Uh, that was from Reuters. And uh, they, they started injecting all kinds of money, billions of dollars, into the overnight lending market to keep the interest rates on these loans low uh, to the, back to the 1.75 to 2.25 range. And so we were spending money, uh, billions of dollars as a country, on this, providing liquidity at least. And nothing had been done like this since the Great Recession as far as quantitative easing. This was really the beginning of quantitative easing. And so this was all happening last year. So from CNN, in October 2019, the the New York Fed pumped $99.9 billion of cash into the financial system on Tuesday alone. It toppled Excuse me, it topped that by injecting $134.2 billion on Thursday. This is from October of 2019. In addition to that, short-term liquidity, which gets paid back quickly, the New York Fed purchased $26 billion of Treasury bills this week. Those T-bill purchases drew enormous demand, with banks requesting nearly four times as much cash from the Fed. And so those two big-to-fail banks that we bailed out with billions and trillions, trillions of dollars of uh, taxpayer money in 2008, 2009, they're having trouble again. That's what this is indicating. And so we can see, though, if we really track the history of government intervention back to the Federal Reserve's creation in 1913, that we have had trouble as a country ever since then with the government creating these boom and bust cycles in the economy. And we had a great law that was passed after the Great Depression in 1933 called Glass-Steagall that said banking interests and securities interests had to be separated. Well, Alan Greenspan, the head of the Fed in the 80s and 90s, thought this was an antiquated law and was going to hold back the economy. And he lobbied Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and Bush uh, Sr. to repeal this, and he couldn't get any traction on it until 1999. He got together uh, with Bill Clinton and had it repealed. Congress repealed Glass-Steagall legislation. Uh, This is what led to the Great Depression is this overlap in bank interest and securities interest. People were taking loans out of the bank and going to put it in in the stock market and leveraging their money, and they couldn't get their money out quick enough, and that's ultimately what caused the bank failures in the the Great Depression. And so they they created a veil of separation, though, with Glass-Steagall. And so we repealed that, and immediately almost... These banks started issuing the liar loans. Everybody could walk into the bank and get a loan. And uh, if you sat down with me, I've probably told you this story in one of our initial meetings of what was going on uh, during this period. I had a, had a client come in that was building houses here locally in the upstate of, of, of uh, South Carolina in the mid-2000s. He had a $300,000 home that he just finished building. He was walking around outside doing the landscaping, cleaning it up, getting ready to list it. And a young lady he thought was probably in her early 20s came up to the house and she had some children in her car with her. And she said, I want to buy this house. And he told her, well, ma'am, I don't mean to be rude, but how in the world would you afford to buy this $300,000 home? I couldn't have afforded to buy this house when I was in my early 20s. And she said, don't worry about it. 
I've already got the loan. So he sold her the house. Why wouldn't he, right? And so she moved into the home and she was never able to make one payment. And so basically it was a liar loan. She said she had an income that could sustain that payment, but she didn't. And so the banks were packaging all these loans together in mortgage-backed securities and selling them. And so then the government came in when all this collapsed in 2007, 2008, and started buying these. And so had we had Glass-Steagall, it's my strong belief that we would have never had the Great Recession and all this government intervention that we've had uh, since then and we're having today. But that created unstable footing for us when there was overlap with the securities market and the banking market. And so uh, this, this could have been prevented, I believe. So from CNN, there's something wrong with the plumbing of the financial system. The stress is still there, said Philip Mary, senior U.S. strategist at Rabobank. Without the Fed, the repo market just wouldn't function anymore. That's the sad conclusion of what we've seen since September, Mari said. Earlier this week, the New York Fed announced it increased the size of its overnight repurchase agreement. This is back from uh, October of 2019. More from that article. Uh, okay. So the, earlier this week, the New York Fed announced it increased the size of its overnight repurchase agreement repo operations to at least $120 billion. That's up from $75 billion previously. And the New York Fed lifted the size of its term repo operations, which spanned multiple days, to at least $45 billion. All this on top of the $60 billion in Treasury bills the Fed had promised to outright purchase each month. That pertinent liquidity will boost the size of the central bank's massive balance sheet, reversing recent efforts to shrink it. Now, what that's talking about is uh, President Trump, in, when he was running for uh, president, he said that the stock market was a big, fat, giant bubble and we needed to increase interest rates because they were at near zero and so forth. And so he put in Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed right now. And so that's what Jerome Powell started doing. In 2018, he started increasing interest rates, trying to get them uh, above that 0% where they were hovering at back then. And so we saw these big dips in the stock market. People were coming into my office that had lost thirty dollars and $40,000 in these dips, and they were angry and upset about it. And so there was, a, there was a lot of volatility in the market in 2018. And so then Trump started saying, oh, no, we don't need to do that anymore. We need to back off of that. And started saying that the Fed is the greatest threat to his administration. But the, what Jerome Powell was trying to do is decrease the size of the federal government's or the Federal Reserve's balance sheet from that four trillion dollars that it had left over from the Great Recession, from all those bonds that it had bought, and so forth. But now the balance sheet is up over seven trillion dollars this year with all of the measures that the government has taken. This is said all this about the economy being so uh, unstable. Uh, because the, unsh the, 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 the banking system was on shaky footing before COVID-19 ever started. And so uh, here's another guy from Data Trek Research, Nicholas Colas. They are basically fiddling with the dials. This is, that's not a comfortable feeling because this is an important market. But if it happens enough times, you start to wonder what the heck is wrong with the ATMs at the bank. This is talking about those overnight lending. And so it's talking about the lack of confidence that's starting to have 
uh, in, the, in the banking system. And so this was all happening last year. So we had all these indicators piling up that something bad was happening or about to happen. The Fed lives and dies by confidence, uh, Cola said. And this uh, does not inspire confidence. So we had this indicator that the financial storm was brewing last year. Then COVID struck in February of this year, 2020. And boy, did it strike. Gross domestic production shrank by 29%. We saw a sharp drop in what we are experiencing now and uh, a rapid rise in stock prices due to the government intervention. Apple is now worth $2 trillion. Apple stock price fell to $248.23 in March. And as of this recording, it was up to $505.42, $505, more than double its low. Has Apple sold that much in product this year to double its stock price? Apple seems to have benefited by the lockdown when more people may have been using their smartphones. It's important to understand that when everyone is optimistic about the stock market, as it appears many are right now, it's time to be really cautious, folks. When others are fearful is when we can look for opportunities in the market that can be beneficial for us. But right now, when there's this exuberance in the market, this is not. This is the time to be cautious. From realinvestmentadvice.com, the fact of the matter is that over 90% of the world's economy economies are in a recession. Second quarter real GDP fell by an annualized rate of 32.9%. The last such decline was during the Great Depression. While the recovery may take hold, there is no guarantee it will last. Recovery has been fully supported by grossly unsustainable fiscal and monetary actions. There are serious questions as to whether these operations can continue. Of course, there was the $2 trillion of CARES Act money where many people received direct payments from the government. You may have. Uh, We were running a trillion-dollar deficit uh, before COVID-19 struck, and it's likely that this year we'll run a $4 trillion deficit. Now, that's a four and 12 zeros behind it. It's hard to even think about numbers this big. But also, the Federal Reserve has stated it would be buying stocks uh, but this has never happened before, and so that before the 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 Fed was just buying corporate bond, excuse me, was buying government bonds, but now they're buying corporate bonds also, and uh, and so that that was a that was a strange happening as well. CNBC, the Federal Reserve is continuing to buy corporate bonds, following up on a pledge it made in March of this year. Corporate America titans such as Microsoft, Apple, and Home Depot have been among the beneficiaries. Questions have been raised over the moral hazard as the Fed buys debt from companies that don't seem to need the central bank's help. So Apple stock is surging and the government is buying its bonds. So Apple issues bonds, the government buys it, and it gives them more money to use, and the price goes up. So the government helped drive up the price of Apple. Sounds like nationalizing companies to me. Not a good sign. In addition, it has purchased bonds and speculative-grade companies as well as ETFs or exchange-traded funds, including uh, SPDR, Bloomberg, Barclays, High Yield Bond Fund, a fund which the Fed holds $412 billion position in. That was from CNBC. 500 companies make up Wall Street's most widely used measure of the stock market's performance, the S&P 500 index. If it were not just for six of them, the benchmark would be down this year. 
That's the bad news. The good news is that, the, that thanks to these six high-flying stocks, including Apple, which on Wednesday became the first company valued at $2 trillion, uh, the S&P 500 has powered through the coronavirus pandemic to gain almost 5% and set a record. That was from thehour.com. Along with Apple, the overachievers are Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, Google's parent, Apple, or Al- Alphabet, rather, are household names that have leveraged dis- digital expertise to prosper amid the new socially distanced reality. Through Tuesday, these six stocks can collectively make up more than 43% this year, while the rest of the companies in the index lost about 4%. So what this is saying is the S&P 500 index, which oftentimes when people think about whether the market was up or down, they look at the S&P 500 index. It's an index of 500 large companies in America. And what this is saying, if it were not for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, and Google, that the S&P 500 index would be down for the year. When the lockdown started and sports were shut down, people started flocking towards trading in the stock market. It was almost like gambling, and they weren't able to gamble, so they started using uh, the stock market to do that. Novice investors have been using super cheap services like Robinhood. This did not work out for one 20-year-old investor who was assigned over a half a million dollars worth of leverage. It appears he believed he would owe over $730,000 on a margin call, and he committed suicide, thinking he had ruined his future. Robinhood added 3 million new users in the first quarter of the year. Surely this is helping to drive the market up also. Something else to look out for. When the Fed drops interest rates, it incentivizes people and corporations to take on debt. This may work out, but what happens if something changes in their ability to pay back what they have borrowed? A slower recovery could have wide-reaching implications in financial markets. Many security prices reflect investors' expectation that profits will normalize next year, when in fact it could take at least two or three years, said Lael Topiclo, a senior fund manager and head of credit at J.O. Hambro Capital Management in New York. She sees junk bonds as being overpriced, and it just seems absolutely incredible how much people are closing their eyes and buying. Corporations have also been borrowing heavily as the Fed slashed short-term interest rates to near zero and supported credit markets through through this. For example, buying company bonds like we spoke about previously or just a few minutes ago. Lower rates have spurred investors to buy higher-yielding, riskier securities, which has allowed junk-rated firms to borrow more to tie them over during this crisis. And that was from Yahoo Finance. So here's a bit of irony from HousingWire.com. Citibank was fined $30 million by federal banking regulators after an investigation found that the bank was not selling foreclosed homes back into the market fast enough. This was in 2019. Citibank was holding foreclosures longer than it should have, the government said, and fined them $30 million. But remember, as part of the CARES Act this year, Fannie Mae was made to suspend foreclosures through the end of this month, August of 2020. It'll be interesting to see if that's renewed. We've seen real estate demand remain high and value surging with interest rates being dropped uh, to near zero. And uh, But if I were Citibank, that would really burn uh, for me that I had to pay $30 million out, and now the government is telling these uh, these companies to, to hold foreclosures 
off the market. We know 20 million, 21 million people are unemployed, which is about 10.2% of people. But what's interesting is the Bureau of Labor Stats releases the labor force participation rate, the labor force participation rate. This is everyone 16 to 64 that is currently employed or seeking employment. It's the lowest it's been in 20 years. Only 61.4% of people are in the workforce. What in the world are the other 38.6% of people doing? That is a good question. But 38.6% of people are not working. Now, I know this show was a little bit different, and I appreciate you hanging in there with me. But this, uh, this is some important information to have an understanding of, of what's really going on out there. This isn't stuff you're going to see in the news. And I know I quickly summarized this and went really quickly. And I know this is a little heavy, but the point of sharing this info is to tell you that now is the time to take action with preparing your financial plan. I know we have some younger people also listening to the show, and if you're 20 years plus from retirement, there are things you can do to help yourself have a, have a better time in retirement. Our show is geared towards those who are preparing for retirement and those who are in retirement, and, but we'd be happy to help guide anyone if they have questions. In all of our lives, this is what I, this, I said this last week, in all of our lives, there are things that we put off thinking we can always do them later. But that is not always true. Now is the time to take action. The first step of getting a financial plan together or maybe making sure that your plan will work out. You deserve a great retirement. A great retirement starts with a financial plan, though. You deserve a great retirement that isn't filled with worry about money. You want an evergreen plan that's ready for the economic storms or it's ready for the prosperity times. You deserve a great retirement filled with choices and freedom and joy. So give us a call at 864-618-4800 or shoot me an email at david at clientsexcel.com and let's get you on your way to a great retirement. See you next week. Investment advisory services offered only by duly registered individuals through AE Wealth Management, LLC. AE Wealth Management and Clients Excel are not affiliated companies. Investing involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products, never securities or investments. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims-paying abilities of the insuring carrier. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only. It's not intended to be used as the sole basis for financial decisions, nor should it be construed as advice designed to meet particular needs of an individual situation. Clients Excel is not permitted to offer, and no statement made during this show shall constitute tax or legal advice. Our firm is not affiliated with or endorsed by the U.S. government or any governmental agency. The information and opinions contained herein provided by third parties have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Clients Excel. The use of logos and or trademarks of podcast hosting sites are the property of their respective owners and are not an endorsement by those owners of our firm or our program.